you were saying that you went to Maui just recently with Carmen and you decided to turn off your emails. I mean, in today's time, it just seems so hard. It sounds impossible to do. How, how did you end up doing that and being okay with it? You know, it's, um, it's kind of embarrassing to say that, you know, for the first time in nearly 18 years being in, the, in this uh, industry that I'm in, that I was actually able to turn off my email to, uh, you know, for an entire week. I've never done it before. I have never turned off my email when, when I've gone away. I've always been connected. And, uh, you know, as a, a business owner and, uh, you know, in my line of work, we are typically on, you know, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously I have uh, great staff uh, who uh, do look after my email, but, uh, you know, I tend to always be connected to it anyways. And, you know, part of that and, and uh, conversation I actually had with some of my staff is that I don't feel that it's okay for me to have them look after my email seven days a week, evenings and weekends. So rather than me letting them look after my email, I choose to look after it myself. So when me and Karma went away here in December, it was, uh, you know, a time when I made a commitment to actually be logged out of my email on my mobile device when I was away for the entire time that I was away. And let me tell you, I wish I would have done this sooner because, uh, you know, you find, like, I finally got to actually unwind and relax when I was away and recharge. And, you know, when you have that work email on your device when you're away and, uh, you know, sure, we all spend some time on our devices when we're on vacation, uh, whether we're, you know, checking news or whatever else, getting on social media. You know, if that one email comes in, it can completely derail your day or take up that mental space that you should really not be uh, using while you're away on vacation. And I recall, you know, the previous year when I went away, I got two emails and those two emails uh, ended up taking up about four days out of my vacation. You know, uh, one was uh, related to marketing and one was related to a client. I mean, obviously I do care about, um, you know, our clients and, and also, you know, some of the business stuff that has to be taken care of. So I decided at that time to jump in. And you know what? That's my fault. That's not my fault for not having that boundary when I was away on vacation. But uh, this time when I went away, it was uh, a great time to actually realize it. And I wish I would have realized it a long, long time ago. And there's, you know, one thing that I will share with any new agent that's getting into the business or the ones that choose to join up onto our team is, you know, the number one appointment in your device should be your significant other or your family. Because I think as an entrepreneur or as someone who is, uh, you know, always on the go, it is very hard to break that uh, workaholic behavior that some people may have. And I'm guilty of that myself. And I think that if you can have those boundaries from the very beginning, when you are either an entrepreneur or you start a business or a career where you kind of have to be a self-starter, I think it's incredibly important to set those habits early on, because let me tell you, it is one difficult habit to break, especially when you get going in it. And I'm, uh, you know, very, very fortunate to have a partner who's also an entrepreneur and a business owner. So, you know, we can justify diving into our, our work emails or dealing with some work issues while we're away. We kind of uh, accept that. And, um, you know, it doesn't consume all of our days or anything like that. And, you know, we sometimes get to do that while we are, you know, somewhere tropical or away on a vacation. But, um, you know actually having a full week off with no work email and not even thinking about work. That was pretty nice. Not going to lie. When you got back to Calgary, did you go full force into work now that you're recharged, you're ready to go new year, new me, let's go. Or did you take it gracefully and say those boundaries I need to apply moving forward? Sure. I do need to check my emails now, 
maybe time slots, maybe in increments, not all day, every day. Uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, when I got back, you know, my, my staff, they were actually really happy that I didn't jump into the email, except for that one time when I checked, you know, some <laughs> flight information and I forwarded a marketing email to the marketing department. But other than that, um, you know, they were very happy that I actually stayed committed to the commitment that I made before we went away. And, uh, you know, I think it's like, we live in a world where we get so many messages directed towards us, you know, someone will be like, Hey, Zakir, you know, I sent you a message. How come you haven't responded to it? And you're like, okay, where did you send that message? Yeah. Everything ends up on this thing, but how many different communication channels are we exposed to on a daily basis? It's uh, quite overwhelming. And uh, I think it's important for us to, you know, yeah, have some boundaries around that to kind of simplify, you know, which communication channels that we want to focus on. Because sometimes when someone sends you a message, you, one of the questions is like, well, where did you send it? You know, was it a DM through, you know, one of the social media channels? Was it, you know, uh, email, text? Uh, WhatsApp, <laughs> uh, all the other apps, it never ends. Messaging, uh, Voxer, this and that, like it just never ends. Right. So I think obviously with technology, it has enhanced communication, but I think it's also getting to the point where it's overwhelming for us as human beings. Totally. I mean, imagine us waking up and flowing with every message and emotion that we get through our phones. Like you'll just be like this all over the map. And that's what we tend to do. If we guide ourselves through the emails and everything, we're just like this. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, going through what we went through here during the pandemic, I mean, I think we got to witness um, the power of social media and, and electronic communication on how it was obviously creating a lot of um, division within the society of all the information and misinformation that everybody was uh, sharing and exposing ourselves to through our mobile devices. And, um, you know, it's distractions, really. And I believe that, uh, you know, as we're getting more and more surrounded with technology and communication and information, we need to be incredibly aware of what kind of information do we consume? You know, just like we have to be really conscious about the type of foods we eat, you know, in order to remain healthy. I think we need to apply similar principles to the information that we consume just so that we can, you know, keep our sanity, if anything. Absolutely. You know, I took some time off social media during the Christmas holidays. I said, I need to back off because I realized people just started sending you messages all over the place because they're off work now. So here, check this out. Check this out. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. All right, I'm taking a break for a month. And it uh, felt good. felt nice. So how was that? How was that for you? Like, I mean, and again, I mean, you were not on any social media account? Well, I'd go on, but I didn't post. I didn't engage. I looked a little bit and I would bounce. Just couldn't do it. You know, I it was just exhausting. I was burnt out year end has done you know it's 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 interesting i mean if we sit there and look at human behavior and it's actually pretty scary you know, how we are all exposed to images videos and all these images are basically a millisecond of someone's life then those photos are enhanced and manipulated or videos are even manipulated with filters and the impact that that has on our brain. And when we sit there and compare ourselves to others and we compare our, our life to the life that other people are posting on social media, I mean, it's all fake essentially. Not everything is fake. I mean, obviously there's some, some stuff that's real, but you know, we sit there and, we can easily go down that rabbit hole of comparing ourselves and then start feeling crappy about ourselves. And I think this is a big part that, you know, we need to have that really heightened awareness of, especially when it comes to mental health. 
right? The impact that it has on us as adults. And then imagine the impact it has on the younger generation that's coming in. You know, when I was younger, I mean, I think cell phones were just coming out. We had the big brick phones. Oh, yes. I didn't even text. I would have a pager. You know, your friends would page you to call them and you'd have to find a pay phone or, you know, wait till you get home to call them. And uh, the devices that the kids have now at a very early age, you know, it was like, you know, we didn't have computers that were that strong when we were young. We had uh, everyone sharing one computer or dial up. Yeah. Hey, you give a kid a rotary phone today and they'd be like, what's this? <laughs> Here, play the snake game on the Nokias. <laughs> yeah. Tetris. Yes. Yeah, Do you remember the Motorola Star Trek or TAC, Star Trek? Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of miss them. They were indestructible. Yeah, they lasted a long time, didn't they? They sure did. Yeah. Do you ever wish we could go back onto a flip phone just for a day? Uh, how about no phones for a day? Hmm. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, just looking back at the childhood of, uh, you know, the freedom that we had with without all the distractions, being out in nature. Bike riding. Riding a bike around. Yeah. No helmets. Oh, yeah. That was, that was scary stuff. Exactly. You know, I, I, I told you the other day, I read the book that you gave me again. Oh, the shadow effect, yes. Mm -hmm. I had it out on my coffee table and I said, oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. But again, you can read a book or you can sit there and just scroll mindlessly through social media before bed. And I realized that had been sitting on my coffee table for over a month. And I said, come on. You know, and, and I would let myself down because I would see it every night, but I just never opened it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Where did time go? So you almost need to get on things when you it's bugging you. Do you believe that? You know, I think as human beings, I mean, we obviously, we all thrive on routine. And we also thrive if we, you know, take action to do that personal work or the self-improvement or, you know, don't procrastinate. I mean, everybody has procrastinated or will procrastinate. And, uh, you know, it's just, again, we all have a choice when we get up, right? To get out of bed, that's an action. We have a choice to, yeah, pick up that book, read 10 pages, read a chapter. And it's all choice management that we have to navigate through, right? So, um, you know, picking out a book like that, it's not the first time that you read it. And, uh, you know, it's all about what you get out of that book. And, uh, you know, that book was introduced to me by a very good friend and, and coach and a mentor. And that I started working with about six years ago. And uh, he himself, I mean, he was uh, up here speaking to my team a few years ago where he held up that book and he had read that book over 450 times. Wow. Right? But it's just, uh, you know, again, it's not necessarily about how many books you can read. It's about what you can get out of a book because some books can be incredibly impactful on on us when we read them and then perhaps we read it again and we'll get something else out of it. What made you give me that book? You know what? Um, I've given that book to a lot of people that I care about. Uh, it was a book that had a huge impact on myself personally. And, uh, you know, we all have that shadow, you know, that shadow is that negative inner dialogue. Everyone, everybody has it. Right. And it's really learning to, to recognize it and to ensure that you have the tools to acknowledge that it's there, but also not allowing that inner dialogue, the negative inner dialogue that is to self-sabotage you. And, uh, you know, I think it's an amazing book. It has many, many amazing messages, um, to reflect on. And, uh, you know, I give those books to the people that I do care about. Thank you. You know, we talk about negative dialogue. Um, sometimes it's hard to look in the mirror. You are not only looking at yourself in the mirror, but you're driving and you'll see yourself. You're out there. And you and I have talked about it. It is nerve wracking for you. People don't realize how hard it is 
to be out there and put yourself out there yet there's something empowering because clearly you can see through the results something is working for people which i find beautiful yeah um even when i say that i get a little emotional because um you know it's it's really fascinating marketing is a fascinating thing to do Uh, it's uh, fascinating when you can get the marketing to work for your business and you know obviously in my industry it's uh, a lot about promoting your brand and your name uh, in your industry to attract and draw people to use you for the services that we offer in the real estate industry and you know, back in 2010, you know, I was essentially instructed that I had to start a team. And that's when a team started. And, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily my choice. But, you know, again, uh, being fairly new in the business at the time, you know, you had to build a name. So, yeah, we figured Justin Harvard Associates. Now, Putting myself out there, I mean, I look at this as an honor and a privilege and a responsibility for, you know, the people that I get to work with, you know, having nearly 80 people in my organization with staff and, and other advisors, you know, it's my obligation to generate the opportunities for everyone in the organization so they can, again, get out there and uh, serve Calgarians with their real estate needs at a high level. And, you know, in a partnership with them, yeah, I have to put myself way out of my comfort zone. And, uh, you know, being a, a natural introvert where, you know, if I had it my way, people wouldn't know who I was. I would just be sitting in, on my computer in the basement, uh, working on the websites or doing something uh, related to marketing. And, uh, yeah, it is... Um, it's definitely a pretty interesting journey to go through to put myself out there way out of my comfort zone. Uh, the billboards, I mean, it's, it's weird. I try to have, you know, the blinders on when I, when I drive around and, you know, even walk around. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, um, like I said, it's not easy. It's, it's uncomfortable. I mean, just like it's uncomfortable for people to do a video or see yourself on a video. I mean, I'm human. I'm the same. Um, you know, but at the same time, I challenge myself each and every day to, you know, um, work through all of those things because, uh, I think it's important for the people that I get to work with. And at the same time, um, it's also amazing to connect with so many of our clients and, uh, you know, deliver on the results that, uh, you know, they hire us to do and, and making sure that we have an impact on them and their families, because, you know, there's so many rewards on the one side, but at the same time, we all have those inner, inner challenges that we all got to overcome. Totally. I remember seeing. I remember seeing you at the airport. I think it was a 40 foot by a hundred foot banner. You know, you'd land and you'd say, Hey, Justin, how's it going? I mean, you, you, you're waiting for your bags and I see you. So you're everywhere. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Well, yeah, that airport, I mean, that was, uh, yeah, it was a 24 by 100 foot billboard there on the side of the, the parkade. Um, yeah. <laughs> I did that once and, uh, but you know what, again, going to the airport has been, there's been many, uh, interesting experiences up there. You know, one time I went up to the WestJet counter and the lady behind the counter, she's like, you know, were you here yesterday? And I'm like, nope. She's like, Hmm. She kind of puzzled by it. Right. Um, I didn't say, you know, it's because of the marketing or anything like that. Um, another time I went up to the gate, uh, this is actually when I had my leg broken too. I was on crutches. Oh, I remember that. Was that from the skiing or snowboarding accident? Yeah, the snowboarding accident. But um, yeah, no, so I was flying out to uh, to somewhere for some conference or something like that. And, you know, they recognized who I was at the gate. And, you know, they're, they definitely made me uh, turn redder than a tomato by uh, <laughs> blasting it on the intercom that look who's here. Um you know, but then at the same time, uh, you know, it's, 
it's again, part of the marketing and I just gotta, you know, again, it's, it is uncomfortable, but at the same time, uh, you know, you know that the marketing is working as well. You know, we talk about the negative dialogue that we have to face and overcome. How do you control the external factors of others around, you know, well, you're out there. So people can put labels on people when they're too noisy. You know, I know someone that's on social media um, that gets bullied often because, oh, they think they're so cool or they're it because they're always showing their life on social media, but that's their career. That's their job. How do you ignore the naysayers in, in life? Because that can hurt those words. Oh, um, they can hurt if you let them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, I think again, um, when you start to understand a little more about human behavior, and you understand projection. You know, if people are going to point at you, they're typically three fingers that point back. So usually that is something within themselves that they may not necessarily like in themselves that they project onto you. And I mean, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but, you know, just understanding the basics of human behavior when it comes to that. And sure, it can be jealousy. It can be people that, you know, uh, get triggered and somehow, but that's on them. It's on them how they react or respond or what they say. And uh, you just got to learn to turn out the noise and, and not allow it to take your energy really and have those boundaries. You know, we all have a choice of what kind of information that we want to, you know, uh, see, observe and take in. And you just got to choose just to turn a blind eye to it. And, you know, it's, it's also a sign that the marketing is working, right? Like sure I, have is. That do, I have friends that do way more marketing than I do. And, you know, uh, some of my friends will actually will uh, gauge their advertising campaign based on the hate that they get on Twitter. Interesting. You know, it's like, hey, good or bad, it's marketing, it's working, right? So, you know, it, at the end of the day, I mean, that's my, not my objective at all to to try to create haters or anything out there. And you know, it, it's I can understand that, you know having my image plastered all over the billboards around town can seem like it's ego, but it's not. I can assure you that I don't necessarily enjoy it, but it's again, part of building a brand attached to a person. Now it has created that omnipresence in the marketplace as well. And at the same time, there are many times when I will meet people and they're like, Oh, you're not how I thought you would be. So the marketing has, again, created this persona of what they think I am like versus who you truly are, who I actually am when they meet me because they paint this image in their mind that uh, someone that's going to do that kind of marketing must have a big ego or this and that. And um, which is totally the opposite because I, I have known you for many years and we've been friends. So <laughs> far from. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know what, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, and again, uh, it's, it's fascinating again to observe how, how people react and respond. And at the end of the day, we all have a personal responsibility in how we respond or react to anything. That's on us. Um, you know, if, um, if you're upset at something, I mean, that's on you. Go look in the mirror. Trigger that emotion within you. For the people that don't know you, Justin, you were born in Norway. Uh, You came to Calgary at a young age. Am I right? You got it right. Did you know you were going to be an entrepreneur? Did you have family in real estate? Was any of this written in the stars? (laughs) No, not at all. Um, You know, I guess like when we came over, I was 13 years old and... um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't easy. I mean, obviously coming to a new country, a new culture, a new language, uh, being 13, going right into grade seven, because in Norway, we actually start schooling at, at the age of seven. There's many years of, uh, of struggles, uh, especially learning the English language. You know, 
I was uh, put in small ESL classes away from, you know, the other kids um, in certain classes. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I had, uh, you know, some great people in my class in, in junior high that also helped me with my homework. You know, um, my friend Patrick's mom, you know, she spent many hours helping me with my, my English homework. And there was actually a time when I would be sitting there doing, you know, back then we would, uh, you know, write definitions of certain English words. And then I would sit there and translate that from English to Norwegian. And I remember I'd be up to like 11 o'clock at night, some nights just doing my English homework. And, uh, you know, it wasn't probably until like high school where I became more comfortable and becoming more outgoing. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, I think one of the things that, you know, immigrants that come to Canada, they see this as a land of opportunity. And, uh, you know, our parents wanted us kids to experience something different than Norway, although Norway is, you know, one of the best places in the world to live. And, uh, you know, my first job, uh, I was actually 14 years old. And, uh, you know, yeah, I was delivering flyers and newspapers. And then I had a job at 7-Eleven as a stock boy and may or may not have been paid in Slurpees for a time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, even, even one of my teachers in, uh, in, in junior high was uh, giving my, well, kind of giving me crap for hanging out at 7-Eleven. So, I mean, I learned a lot of English at 7-Eleven as well which uh, probably not the best place to learn English, but, uh, you know, spent quite a bit of time there playing video games and stuff and mopping the floors for Slurpees. And then, and then eventually got a job there. I think it was 425 an hour. Wow. 425 an hour. I know. Right. Like, yeah. But at the end of the day, you know what? Um, I think, you know, we all, essentially can have that entrepreneurial spirit within ourselves. And, you know, yeah, it takes, it takes risk for sure. But you also got to have a, a vision. You got to have a dream. You have to have, you know, the ability to manifest what you want to create for yourself. And I think that's why you see so many immigrants in this country do so many amazing things. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, what, one of the things that makes uh, Canada so amazing. It's all the people because we're, we're from so many, again, lots of amazing Canadians, but there are also lots of amazing people that have made Canada their new home. Right. And, uh, you know, your family is also, you know, from abroad as well. Right. And has made Canada. East Africa. Home. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I always think though, when we think of entrepreneurship, were you afraid of failure? Were you ever afraid of not achieving this vision, this goal that you had? And where did this vision and goal come from? First of all, you know, when I first got into real estate, I just, um, you know, I just, yeah, I just wanted to have a successful career. You know, I got married and, uh, you know, I wanted to provide for, for our family and start a family. And, uh, you know, clearly, uh, that was something that unfortunately didn't pan out or fortunately didn't pan out, whichever way you look at it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, even going through the divorce and stuff like that it was a time when I was recognized as the, the top agent, uh, at the brokerage where we used to be at. And I got the email notification and, and I remember sitting in this big empty house and I cried because I'm like, this is what so-called success is supposed to feel like. And, uh, you know, it was empty. It was lonely. Um, you know, but it took me a few years to obviously work through that. And, and I, I, to be honest, I hid in my work. I said to myself, work is all I have left. And, uh, you know, I went almost five years before I took a one week vacation, but that was my way of coping with it. And I think my obsession and uh, just diving into work to hide essentially in my emotions and without, uh, you know, dealing with my, 
the stuff that I should have done the work for. Again, should, or maybe I shouldn't because everything works out the way it's supposed to work out at the right time. And, you know, I think that was a big foundational piece to where, you know, this business is today. And I never had a plan to build this big real estate team to be, you know, top real estate team in Calgary for most homes sold for, you know, now nearly five years or number two in the world, which we got recognized for here um, later in the fall. I mean, that's just a, a, a byproduct of, you know, me ha- being so fortunate to having been surrounded by so many amazing people um, along my real estate journey. And, uh, you know, everybody has contributed to where the organization is today. Some people have been with us, they have left, they have moved on uh, to have different careers or, or even um, built their own real estate career. And, uh, you know, I'm just very fortunate to have had so many amazing people and still have amazing people today. And, uh, you know, again, it's just uh, something that I never, like I said, I never had this idea to build this big team. Are you ever afraid of snapping out of all this? And that was just a dream what you have built. I mean, it's remarkable. Oh, like p- coming out of the matrix or coming something out of like the that? Matrix. <laughs> no, you know what? It, it's, it's crazy how fast time flies. I mean, this February will be 18 years that I've been in this, in this business. And it doesn't feel like 18 years, but you know, at the same time, going back to fear, I mean, I think whenever you start something new, whenever you start a new career, um, there's some fear involved in that because it's change. Sure. There's excitement, but then if you are in a position where you're creating your own opportunities where, yeah, you don't have a paycheck on the first and on the 15th. And oh, by the way, you have to now invest into your business to generate the opportunities, build the support system, hire people. SEO. Well, every time that you, I mean, when you, when I made my first hire, I mean, it was terrifying, right? Like, oh my God, now I'm responsible for this person's salary. Now I got to go out there and make more money in order to pay for that, right? I mean, I think anybody that has ever started any sort of company and taken on a responsibility to hire an employee. I mean, the first one is uh, very terrifying. And, you know, obviously the fear of failure, I think is something that every entrepreneur will have, but at the same time, that can also be the driver for you to ensure that you, you don't fail. But if you do fall on your face, it's always a lesson and it's always about getting back up and learning from those failures to go at it again, because as long as you don't quit, you don't fail. Do it. What it says in the back, don't quit, do it. Yeah, true. I guess so. eh? (laughs) Maybe that's how I was drawn to it. (laughs) Someone wants to be the next Justin Haver. If somebody wants to join a team, get into real estate, what do they do? What, where should they start? Cause you know, we see these selling sunsets and all of that. Um, it's not all real. <laughs> and I'm sure uh, they quickly I, realize that. <laughs> I can't even watch. Well, I mean, you know what? I should say I can't watch them. I tried watching selling sunset, but I, I just couldn't, um, you know, the thing is those shows, first and foremost, they're all built around drama. Drama sell like reality TV is drama, and that sells sells those shows. Uh, you know, I've I met several of the people um, that have been stars of million dollar listing and so forth. And you know what? They're actually normal people. They're not as dramatic as they appear on TV. And uh, you know, they will even say like, "Yeah, no, it's all made up for TV." And um, you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, if someone's looking to get into real estate, I think it's it's really important that they find a mentor or perhaps, you know, where I'm going to say, you know, join a team. Um, join a team or a mentor that can teach you all the ropes of the business because, you know, at the end of the day, it's about building that foundational skill set for your career. 
And I was very fortunate to, you know, have Mike Hanna. Mike Hanna was my agent, uh, you know, before I got into the business. And then he took me in under his wings. And, uh, you know, I've learned lots from him. And I still, you know, have the honor to actually work with him today. He's one of the team members on my team. And, you know, he's been in the business for 26 years. And, you know, but at, but at the same time, uh, getting into this business, it, it can be incredibly rewarding, but you have to be a self-starter. You know, you can have all the training, all the opportunities, all the systems and all that stuff, but you have to have the get up and go, get out of bed and take action. You know, I think one of the things that I see as the biggest challenge for people that are getting into this business. And, and when I got my license, um, my teacher, George Matthews, who you may recall, he, um, he actually said, look around this room. And in two years time, there will only be two of you left in this business. And I'm sitting there going, I'm like, why did I get myself into this industry? Like if, if I'm going to fail, right? And the reality is that this industry is known to have an 87% failure rate in the first five years. Right. And I mean, you know, your data, he's had an incredible career and done exceptionally well as well. And it, it takes a lot of work and, you know, but for someone getting into it now, I think you cannot be focused on, you know, trying to get into the industry and think that it's going to be easy because it's not, you have to be willing to do the work. You have to be willing to be that constant student and put in that work to Again, like I said, it's critical to build that foundation for your career with training, coaching systems, mentoring, and then apply yourself. And I think one of the things, I mean, obviously it's an industry where, you know, people can make a lot of money. And I think it's incredibly important to be grounded when it comes to that. Don't let, don't let money change who you are as a person. Don't let that get to your head. Because if you want to have a long career, um, don't let that ego take over and kill your career. Because, you know, egos can get in the way of many things. How did you tame your ego through this whole career that you've had thus far? Is it mentors that you find that break you down? Because oftentimes we can find mentors that say things we only want to hear. You know, that's another thing. True. I mean, I think it's, it's important to surround yourself with, with good people, right. And have mentors and people that inspire you. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to have, you know, a lot of mentors outside of this market, you know, in other markets in North America and some of the top agents in this world that are, you know, operating at a much higher level than I am. And, you know, just, having friends like that, that kind of grounds you. I mean, you know, I can sit in a room with them and I'm the, I'm the smallest guy. And, you know, I just look at that as a way to be inspired and I learn from them. I'm a sponge and I can see what I can do to bring that back here to, you know, continue to grow and evolve the business that we have built for our organization and how I can impact the agents that, uh, you know, I have the honor and privilege to work alongside. Where do you see the future, uh, the Justin Haver team? Yeah, you know what? It's it's continued to evolve, uh, continue to evolve and ensure that we continue to provide that five-star Google experience for our clients, making sure that we deliver on the, on the results that we promise and walking people through the home buying or selling process, um, alleviating as much stress and obstacles as possible. And... Um, making people's dreams come reality. You know, I think that, you know, many people think that, oh, real estate agents just put a for sale sign up in the yard, <laughs> take some photos and the property gets out. Well, you know what? Maybe that's true for, you know, at the start of last year where, you know, the housing market was just insane. Like you put a for sale sign up in the yard, you could get it sold. Now, it could be argued that, you know, maybe you didn't get the seller the best offer, you know, especially if someone were to say, oh, yeah, I sold it on the first showing or 
sold it before it hit the market. I think the important factor is to always do what is best for your clients, no matter what. And that's not necessarily about getting a quick sale. And, you know, we had many instances there last year where, you know, we had a certain process because we wanted to get the market to get through the property so that we could get as many buyers bidding on the property and then extract as much money from the market that would go into the pocket of the seller. And some instances like that, uh, that we came across, I mean, we had, we had a few scenarios where, you know, people were perhaps not in a good situation. Uh, you know, I remember there was one property in Southeast Calgary where they had met with one agent and, and uh, that agent had said, yeah, you know, they had an investor that would purchase a property for like 425. He could just give them a call and they would have it done and because they weren't in a good financial spot. You know, we had a plan and, uh, you know, we asked them if they could take off for a weekend. And they did. And, uh, you know, we listed it for higher than the 425, we listed it for 450. And we ended up getting them $111,000 over asking price. Now, when they got that offer and they signed it and they realized how much they had sold their property for both of them fell to the floor crying because they didn't even have enough money to buy milk for their family. They were just packing up to leave, to go back East, you know, so when you can have that kind of an impact on a family, yes, it's selling real estate. Um, but some of these situations that we come across, you know, it's more than yeah, just putting up a for sale sign. It's ensuring that, you know, we put together a strategy and a plan and, you know, for sellers that we get the best price possible out of the market at that time. And some of those instances, it can be where, whether it's a family that's looking to relocate, uh, whether it's, you know, in, in a situation like you just explained or, you know, someone coming out of bad relationship that wants to, you know, take the kids and relocate and where, you know, the lady, like the amount of money that we got, the more we're asking price changed her life. So she could start that over for her and her kids. Like many scenarios like that, it's, you know, it's incredibly rewarding that, you know, myself and the team, we get to be part of some of these uh, situations to help them yeah, help them get to a better place sometimes, you know, and, uh, you know, there's always going to be people that are going to buy and sell real estate based on circumstances and needs as, you know, you know, very well from, you know, your father being in this industry for many decades. Yeah, it's been a while. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. Right. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting industry to be in because every day is different. You know, the market can change. Um, we can have uh, new mortgage rules that come into effect. Now we got higher interest rates. You know, we got to deal with that environment. Uh, Toronto comes to Calgary. You know, <laughs> like... Number one thing is, what would you tell your younger self or an agent that's right now in school saying, can't wait to get out there? What would you tell that person? You know, one of the things that I would probably say to my younger self would be to you know, dive into personal development at a much younger age. Clearly, uh, if, uh, you know, you were to say that to a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old, I think people are not as receptive to jump into personal development, at least, um, you know, not the entire population or anything like that. But I think it's important because, you know, we all have emotions. We all have you know, a, a mind and a mind that can wander and, you know, our thoughts can turn into those emotions. Oh, yeah. But if we can get control over our thoughts and also have the ability to regulate our emotions, because, you know, especially if you're going to be in real estate, you're dealing with clients, you know, a buyer is always sitting in fear when they're going through the purchase process. You know, when I bought my first house, when I bought my second house, whatever, every time there's a level of fear and doubt. And those emotions can obviously trigger certain reactions or responses. Uh, 
And, you know, as being a real estate agent, you have to then help navigate other people's emotions. And then it's you know, also important for yourself to ensure that you don't, I mean, you're going to care about your clients. So obviously you're going to have that empathy and understanding, but not to take that on yourself. Right. Because, you know, I look at this industry as, you know, you're going to deal with buyers that are emotional at times. You're going to deal with sellers that may be emotional, whether if they're selling because they're downsizing, they lost a job, divorce or domestic restructuring, uh, a little bit softer, you know, or death, you know, there's going to be emotion and attachment to the house that they're selling or the situation. Then you may have to deal with, you know, the agents on the other side of the transaction who also can be emotional because they may be feeling that they need to be emotional to fight for their client. And then you got to deal with your own emotions through all of that. So it's like literally sailing through a shit storm at times. But if you can have the tools and the resources to do that, that inner work and a better understanding of your own self, it will give you the tools to navigate through that. But I think that's typically something that comes when we get a little bit older and uh, we have the open mind to do that inner work. You know, you do something with your, your team, actually do quite a bit of things, but one of them I find really fascinating is your vision boards. You guys all sit down and we'll start cutting out magazines and putting something together. I mean, you've been doing this for years and you actually have a lot of your vision boards. Uh, where did that come from? And what, what does that tool do for people out there? You know, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, you know what? I've been doing this since uh, I think about 2009, 2010 when I was like, and again, going through a divorce, I wasn't in a good, good place. And you know, I didn't put a lot of effort into a vision board back then, but, you know, it's something that I think it came from that movie, The Secret or the book, The Secret oh, way yeah. back in the day, right? That's kind of where the idea came from and it's about manifesting. And I can tell you this, um, every time that I've done a vision board and, you know, yeah, we do it as a yearly exercise with a team and even the team members will come and say the next year, it's like, yeah, you know, I like everything on my vision board became a reality and it's yeah it's about manifesting the life that you want to achieve or live and then planting that in the unconscious mind to you know really take action and to have something that you're working towards because you know we all get into the, the daily grind but if you have a vision board that whether it's up on your bathroom mirror or on a wall somewhere and you see that and you're like yeah, you know what? I really want to go to on that vacation to Hawaii or, you know, I really want, whether it's a car or, you know, somebody wants to buy a bag or whatever it is. Do you hide your vision board though? Well, I mean, you know, I have one here. <laughs> That's a new one that I'm working on. So it's right in your office. Nice. Well, typically I, I just put it up on my bathroom here. You brush your teeth. You see it twice a day, right? No, oh, that's amazing. Have you thought about chat GPT? and technology and how is it changing? Are we losing the human touch, especially when it comes to real estate? You know, ChatGPT, uh, I mean, it's uh, a fascinating tool to, uh, to dive into. And uh, I don't recommend that you start playing with it at three in the morning because you can't sleep. Um, you're gonna be up if that's what you do. Uh, I can speak from experience. You know, it's it's definitely fascinating. I mean, it, it's it's an incredible tool if you know how to use it. But at the same time, yeah, is it going to take a lot of the thinking out of some of the stuff that we as human beings do? Um, it's kind of scary in some ways of how fast technology is really moving. Are you afraid of AI? You look at the you look at the AI and. In you know, even in the Teslas, you know, the f full driving capabilities. And, you know, I was playing around with that in, in my Tesla there for a bit. And I'm like, that's a little sketchy and weird to having. So it was 100% autonomous? You drive your vehicle and your hands off and you're like, uh, I don't know. Or, you know, are you going to hit the curb there or not? Or curb? Yeah. So what if you're in your Tesla? Are you allowed to text? Because technically you're not driving. 
you are driving. You're sitting in a driver's seat. You are responsible for the vehicle. And actually, the newer Teslas will actually have a camera that will detect whether or not you're on your phone or if you're not looking ahead, and it will beep and warn you. Interesting. That's that's good. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I think it's, I mean, eventually, I think the vehicles will be, you know, fully AI driven, um, but it's going to take time for the machine to learn. And, uh, you know, you still hear of accidents here and there. But, you know, back to the technology aspect and, and artificial intelligence, I mean, you've probably seen, you know, Joe Rogan interview Elon and, you know, what does Elon see as one of the biggest, biggest dangers in, in the world is uh, unregulated artificial intelligence, you know, because um, again, I don't know. Remember um, Terminator when that movie came out? It's a reality. It's becoming a reality. How many, how many times do you sit there today and think about Terminator, the movie? All the time. Right? Skynet. God, that is creepy. Right? Like, um, yeah. And then Elon's building uh, these little robots as well. Well, he was talking about assassin drones. And all it takes is a little chip you could program now. Facial recognize somebody and just send it off and it'll go do its thing. Like, that's scary. And it doesn't take a lot to do in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's scary, right? I mean, again, uh, if uh, artificial intelligence is used for war, weapons, I mean, yeah, they some of the, the military drones that they have out there are as small as a bird. From a technology standpoint, are you seeing a lot of AI being implemented? You know what? I mean, we use AI ourselves in, in our, some of our systems uh, and automations and so forth. But I think that, you know, there are definitely disruptors in the real estate industry, you know, like some of the big portals out of the US, they actually use AI to even scan and listen to the phone calls that are being made through the system to pick up certain words and, and rate the Oh, wow. The engagement between the the potential buyer and the agent, and then score them. Um, you know, there's definite uh, AI that comes into in the background of many of the websites. Um, you know, and again, I think it's going to be more and more readily available for our industry. But at the end of the day, I don't think AI is going to really disrupt our industry because, again, it's it's a person to person. It's a human. It's a person, well, I mean, let me just say this. People are always going to want to have some sort of an advice or walk them through some of their biggest financial decisions. Maybe some people, you know, will be more and more accustomed to relying on the technology piece, but a lot of people are going to want someone there to help them dissect information and ensure that they're doing all the right steps when they're making that big financial purchase, right? So I think human beings will, or, or the human interaction will always be a part of the real estate transaction. It's just the AI is going to just help enhance the productivity of, of agents that choose to embrace it. And, um, you know, we'll see how it goes. Totally. And I'm, I'm wondering is, have you seen people use blockchain or crypto in terms of purchasing assets or is that only in the States we're seeing that? Have you seen it in Canada? You know, I've heard of, I mean, you know, we've had some interesting scenarios over the years of, uh, yeah, people saying they're going to buy property with crypto and so forth. And sure, you know what, there are people that will obviously do it. And then typically how someone will purchase a property, you know, if they have or had a large crypto portfolio, because I think crypto isn't doing that well right now. 
But I mean, you know, if they if they if, if they were cashing out their crypto to put it into fiat, you know, typically what they would do is they would turn it into a U.S. currency, okay, and into the U.S. bank, and then they would bring it out from a U.S. bank into Canada. Uh, you know, but actually exchanging cryptocurrency, like, hey Zach, what's your wallet? I'm going to transfer you X number of bitcoins for your house. Um, we're not there I don't yet. Know of any, yeah. I don't. I don't know of any transactions like that. Okay, that makes unless sense. Unless it was a private deal, because you know, I mean, up here you need to have, you know, I want to make sure that you have lawyers facilitating the transaction to make sure that the title transfer and the funds transfer right, and um, you know that means that they need to have the funds sitting at the lawyers for the closing date. What did your grandmother teach you, Justin? What are some values you have from her? Cause she was very close to you. You know, my grandmother, I mean, uh, yeah, she was, she was like a second mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, she, um, you know, obviously very caring and nurturing just like my mom, but she also worked incredibly hard and, uh, you know, she had grit and determination. She was an incredibly strong woman. I mean, she, um, she also carried a lot of um, pain with her because she lost her, her son, my uncle, you know, and uh, my mom lost her brother. And that, uh, you know, I think was something that, you know, my grandmother carried with her until the day that she passed. And I think that, you know, she didn't, didn't show the grieving, but she was incredibly strong. She lived until she was 96. And I think, you know, some of the things that I even remember the stories, uh, you know, again, coming from Norway, you know, where obviously Norway was invaded <clears throat> in World War II. Mm -hmm. And she had, you know, stories from the war that she, I remember she, she would share them uh, when I was younger. And, uh, you know, just hearing, hearing that and what they went through and how challenging that was you know, how little they lived on and how small a space the entire family would live in. And, you know, she even had a story where she was walking with a uh, metal milk bucket and she walked by a, a German soldier and she, she said she didn't know what came over her, but she swung that bucket out of anger on the side of the head of the German soldier. And she, uh, you know, she thought for sure that he was going to, kill her on the spot and you know he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and just let her keep walking and uh you know i can't imagine living through that and i think that you know one of the things that us canadians i think we were incredibly fortunate to live where we're living um you know you look at what what's going on over in europe right now with ukraine and russia and you know there's a lot of fear over there over you know, something potentially spreading or whatnot. I mean, I know that in Norway and in many countries in Europe, they are, they were mandated to basically have bomb shelter for every person in the country. Like I used to go swimming inside of a mountain at a public swimming pool that used to be a bomb shelter. Oh my goodness. And that, that was actually turned into hockey arena during the Olympics, uh, when they had the Olympics over there in 94. But even the junior high school, we had a bomb shelter in the junior high school. It's a different way, right? different so, life. Yeah, so, so I mean, you know what? Um, you know, over here, do anybody have bomb shelters? No, we, people don't think of it. Or maybe a couple of people think of it. But, uh, you know, it, it's, I think it's... Um, it kind of went on a little bit of a tangent there, but, you know, I think it's something that's important for all of us to kind of reflect on that, you know what, sure, we may not all get along. We may not all agree on the politics or we may not agree on who has the best hockey team or anything like that. Uh, but uh, we live in a pretty amazing country with a lot of amazing people. And I think we all need to just, you know, be a little kinder to each other, especially during these times from what we have all been through here in the last few years, because it has been very tough on 
on families, on friends, uh, on individuals. Mental health is huge. And uh, I think we got to show some empathy to each other and kindness. We're all going through shit, every one of us. And uh, we all got to, you know, just take a step back sometime rather than react or respond and, you know, show some empathy to that person if they're not having a good day. Um, kill them with kindness. You know, it's um, everybody's human. Everybody has feelings and emotions. No, absolutely. You know, one thing I got to say is you went on a fighter jet and you, it was so interesting later on that you, you talked to your mother about it, but she was so afraid. Um, but in a way you paid homage to your uncle. And I thought that was beautiful in that manner that how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I had the opportunity to do that out at, um, at Springbike airport here. And, um, you know, the opportunity was presented to me by one of my colleagues, you know, who knew the pilot, uh, that was basically flying a jet. And, you know, I went to my mom to ask for permission if, uh, she would be okay if I would go up because, you know, my uncle, he passed away, uh, in a fighter jet. Uh, That's he her brother. Yeah, her brother. He had two weeks left in the uh, in the army, and uh, he was on a, a mission up in northern Norway, and they were flying a mission through uh, one of the fjords, and it was really foggy, and yeah, he crashed, and you know that was it. But yeah, two weeks before he was done, and then he was going to be a commercial airline pilot. So you know, but yeah, but uh, getting up into that plane, it was. Uh, it was neat. It was a neat experience for sure. And, uh, you know, I think that's really what life is about. Sometimes it's just uh, creating some of these experiences for yourself. Uh, you know, we all can, you know, think we want to buy stuff for this and that, but at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to take any of that with you, but you can take experiences with you. And I was very fortunate to have my mom's blessing to do that. And, uh, what was the G force on that? <laughs> I, you know, it was north of five and, uh, I did black out because <laughs> we did one of the things that he did near the end was he's like, you know, let's go bust a tower. And, uh, I said, sure. Kind of like Top Gun. Right. And, uh, you know, although when we did it, uh, you know, I just remember my head just kind of tingling. I didn't feel like I blacked out and he's the one that told me that I blacked out because he looked at the footage. And I was just like, dunk, out. And then I just came to a, a few seconds later. Um, but yeah, no, a lot of fun. What an experience. Didn't throw up. But yeah, no, you do about five Gs uh, in it. And, you know, like it's it's really interesting too because, I mean, obviously before you get into playing, they're like, okay, this is the kind of breathing technique that you need to do to make sure that you can kind of hold your core and so you don't black out. And, uh, you know, I perhaps wish I maybe would have had more training and practice on it because then maybe I wouldn't have passed out and I could have had a little more fun. Well, I've seen the video and maybe we'll put it up for the listeners, but you were just puffing. Like there was a certain way of breathing. Like you had to breathe really hard, didn't you? Yeah, you got to, you basically got to, you got to really just engage your entire core and kind of hold your breath because you don't want your blood to go down into your legs, right? And because that's, you want to try to hold your blood up into your head. So if you compress or just really engage your core really hard, uh, it will restrict the blood from going out of your upper body and head. It's pretty, it's, <laughs> it's weird stuff, but, uh, were you out of it for a few yeah. days? No, 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 it's just feeling maybe a little bit woozy afterwards. And it kind of like, it felt like you were walking on a boat. Okay. Yeah. yeah you're kind of like, ah, <laughs> fun, <laughs> fun time. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable that you overcame a fear after you hurt yourself on a snowboarding trip. And it was actually a pretty severe damage or that happened to your leg. I remember they were going to cut it off, weren't they? Or amputate it. I don't know if it's overcoming fear. I think it's just, uh, you know, and again, it was a freak accident uh, just out in Revelstoke. And yeah, I mean, it was a pretty extreme uh, break. It was a tibial plateau fracture type six with a patella tendon tear. tear. 
And uh, basically, yeah, tore my patella tendon right off the bone and was, you know, shattered the bottom of my knee and then the tibia and fibula. Um, should have listened to my friend that said, go around, don't do the jump. Uh, so lesson number one, lesson <laughs> number two, um, take them up on, on the laughing gas when they offer it. <laughs> Cause I declined that, uh, for the one hour of riding out off the mountain into the ER. But, um, but yeah, no, they, um, had to transfer me to another hospital and they said I was at high risk of compartmental syndrome. And, you know, again, you're kind of in a state of shock and I'm like, okay, English, what does that mean? Um, you know, they said, uh, you're at high risk of amputation. We got to transfer you to another hospital. And that's when you're like, what? Like, okay. Then it becomes real, but you know, you learn, you know, lesson number two, um, mobility is a gift. You know, mobility is a gift and anything that we have can be taken away in a second. And, uh, you know, then you learn how important it is to have mobility and how important health is. And uh, then you get to sit in the classroom of patient, in the classroom of patients, because, you know, you got to do the rehabilitation. And if mobility means a lot to you, trust me, you'll put in the work and go to physio and do all the stuff that you need to do to rehab. And, you know, I still continue to work on it to this day. Um, not a hundred percent, but uh, very close to it. And yeah, back skiing, snowboarding. And I was back on the snowboard within a year. That was more of a personal victory to, you know, you fall and you get back up. That's life, isn't it? Fall, get back up, keep going. Yeah. I mean, you know what we have, I mean, we have a choice, right? And uh, the choice is keep going. Keep going. Well, I think we can leave it at that today, but uh, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for this. Appreciate you too. We should uh, catch up and do a coffee or something. Yes, please. It's been a while. <laughs>